0: Let's pray together. Father, how can we render to you the glory, the praise and the honor that is due your name? But for the faithfulness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who gave himself for us and who gave us life and who made our dead hearts sing. We thank you, Father. And Father, we want to hear from you this morning. So we pray that you would open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have all watched the sad spectacle that has unfolded since last October as women have come forward to expose one of the most powerful men in Hollywood as an abuser. These revelations in 2017 gave birth to a hashtag online, me Too, and to a flood of other women who have come forward to tell their own stories of abuse and harassment at the hands of powerful men. And there's really been a long overdue reckoning in many quarters of our culture because of this. This particular Hollywood movie maker, who was at the center of the initial allegations, has now fallen from Hollywood mogul to a disgraced lecher. Long overdue justice is being served to him and to other predatory lecherous men. Sadly, as the revelations unfolded in the secular world, a church too hashtag also emerged. And over the last months, we've been facing revelations of misbehavior, even among well-known leaders within the evangelical movement. And as a result of this last month, our own denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, overwhelmingly approved a resolution at its annual meeting, condemning abuse and another on the holiness and the integrity of ministry leaders. And in the midst of all of this, I've noticed a common thread in much of the secular responses to the Me Too revelations over the last several months. In the secular response, their solution has been not only to identify and punish abusers, something that we all would certainly agree with and want to happen. Their solution has also been to call for more feminism. This becomes problematic for us because feminism does not define justice the way that you and I would define justice biblically. Various strains of feminism, at least since the 1960s, have been arguing that our problems are systemic, and they're systemic in a certain way. It's a diagnosis that disagrees, I think, with a scriptural diagnosis. Um, Feminism has argued that patriarchy has been all-pervasive in our culture, and that women have been owned and controlled through the tyranny of marriage, sex, and child-rearing. Secular feminists tend to view Christianity as a pra- patriarchal religion which has devalued women and they view the church as a powerful agent of oppression. So it's not surprising how their diagnosis of these problems over, that have been coming out over the last several months have been sort of in antipathy to Christianity. Evangelical feminists, rather than outright rejecting the faith, have been trying to redefine the faith for many decades now, so that what the Bible says about men and women in the church and in the home is, is not what you think it says. Some of them have latched on to the Me Too moment to press their case. And they're making the argument that what you and I believe about manhood and womanhood is wrong and is a part of the reason why women are so mistreated in our culture. So to put a fine point on it, they believe that an all-male eldership and husbands leading their families... Cause the kinds of abuses that we are witnessing in the Me Too moment. And they believe that you and I need to offload our patriarchal baggage from our faith. And so here's the issue that I think you and I are facing as we come to the scripture this morning. On the one side, we have both secular feminists and to some degree, evangelical feminists telling us that male leadership in the church and in the home is a great evil that needs to be eradicated. On the other side, we have scripture telling us that male leadership in the church and the home is God's design and is given for our blessing. And so the question facing us is who are we going to believe? This is a tough question for us because our beliefs about these things, apart from the Me Too moment, are already so unpopular. Add to it the Me Too suspicions, and you can see why our biblical beliefs are despised so many in our culture today. And so there's a tremendous social pressure to abandon what Scripture teaches for some kind of a feminist alternative. And so the question really is, who are we going to believe? God and His Word or our cultured despisers? I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to be looking at verses 2 through 16 over the next two sermons. Now, we're going to focus on verses 2 and 3 today, but this passage is not only one of the most controversial passages in all of the New Testament, it's also one of the most difficult to understand. Nevertheless, even though some of the details may be unclear and disputed, I think the main thrust of Paul's Argument about men and women in public worship is clear. Now, Paul has just finished a section about idolatry, and now he's turning the page to a new set of topics. He's addressing some shortcomings in their corporate worship. That's what happens here, beginning at verse 2. And the first shortcoming has to do with headship, which is verses 2 through 16. The second is with the Lord's Supper, which is the last half of chapter 11. And then the third shortcoming has to do with tongues and prophecy, which is chapters 12 through 14. But the first item that he takes up, this shortcoming in their public worship, has to do with male headship in their public worship. But before we can see how this applies to the practical things they were dealing with, which has to do with head coverings and hair length, we first need to understand what exactly headship is. And that's the focus of verses two and three. So this week we're focused on verses two and three. The next time we gather to look at this, we'll look at um, verses four through 16. But today in verses two through three, we're gonna look at three things. We're gonna look at Christ's headship over man in verses two through three A, Then we'll look at man's headship over woman in verse three, part B, and then God's headship over Christ in verse three, part C. So the first thing here is Christ's headship over man. Everybody look at verse two. Paul says this, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now remember that in verse one, Paul has just told them, be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. And now in verse 2, he praises them because for the most part, they have been following his example. They have remembered him in everything. How does Paul know that they're remembering him in this way? Well, the answer to that is in the next clause. He says, because they hold fast firmly to the traditions just as he delivered them to them. So it's difficult in English to see the word play that Paul is doing here. So let me give you a really literal translation to, to bring this out. Paul literally is saying, you hold fast the things handed down to you, just as I handed them down to you. You're holding fast the things I handed down to you, just as I handed, down, handed them down to you. Now, the things that Paul handed down to them were Paul's authoritative apostolic teaching of the gospel. Their faithfulness, therefore, is is not just because they remember Paul generically or they think that he's a nice guy or have nice thoughts about him. Their faithfulness is because they remember and hold fast to his teachings, the things handed down to to them. And that faithfulness has two parts. Number one, the obvious thing here is that they're holding fast to those teachings that he delivered to them. You remember from Acts chapter 18 that Paul lived with them and taught in Corinth for a year and a half, which means he had a year and a half to teach to them and to hand on to them the apostolic word. They had the word not in a book but in a person because Paul was with them. And so their faithfulness to Christ consists in their receiving that word, preserving that word, and holding fast to that word. So they're holding fast. That's the first way that they're being faithful, but they're also holding fast to the teaching um, as he handed it down to them. That little phrase there is really important. That means that they have not corrupted the teaching in any way. So they've received the teaching and they've held to it as he handed it to them. They hold fast to what Paul taught them in the very same sense that he taught it to them. (laughs) That means that he praises them because they neither changed his words, nor did they change the meaning of Paul's words. So they had the apostolic truth in a person. We have the apostolic truth in a book, in the scriptures. That means if we want to hold fast to the truth as God has delivered it to us, we must neither change the words of this book, nor must we ever change the meaning of the words. Of this book. Now, this is important for us because some people are trying or will try to undermine your faithfulness to Jesus by either changing the words of this book or by changing the meaning of the words of this book. Let me explain what I mean by that. They try to change the words in this sense, they argue that some of what the Apostle Paul has told us is just wrong. They say that because he was wrong on some things, there are some words in your Bible that you need not pay attention to. One of the main commentaries that I've been using as I've prepared sermons on 1 Corinthians is written by a guy named Richard Hayes. I think he's a brilliant New Testament scholar. I think that a lot of what he says about the book of 1 Corinthians is absolutely right. But when he comes to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, guess what he says? He says that Paul is teaching about headship based on Paul's interpretation of Genesis 2. And then guess what he says about that? He says Paul's interpretation of Genesis 2 is wrong. And we know better how to interpret Genesis 2 than Paul did. And so that enables Richard Hayes just to set aside the apostles' teaching about male headship in this text. Unless you think that this is all academic, let me tell you that it is not. Many years ago, before Kenwood and Victory Memorial were merged, and right after Jim had become pastor at Kenwood, we had a member who was no longer coming to church anymore. And when Jim reached out to this member to encourage this member to come back, this member expressed disagreement with Paul's teaching on gender. Jim pointed out, but this is in the Bible. And the member dug in and said, I don't care. I still don't agree. I do not agree with what Paul says about this. We ended up having to remove this person from membership for rejecting the Bible's teaching and for non-attendance. So this is not just academic. There are people out there who will try to convince you that Paul is wrong sometimes, and in particular in his teaching about gender and sexuality. You just need to remember that that is the opposite of faithfulness. It's how error and false teaching will undermine your faithfulness to Christ because it's trying to undermine the authority of Scripture in your life. That's what that kind of teaching does. So some people will try to change the words of Scripture simply by telling you that some of those words are wrong. And you can just ignore some of them. But there are other people who will try to undermine your faithfulness by changing the meaning of Paul's words in Scripture. And this is... This is probably the thing that is actually a little bit more subtle and is perhaps the one that you're most likely to run into. I believe that evangelical feminist interpretations of Scripture fall into this category. Evangelical feminists are willing, they're not willing to come right out and say that Paul was wrong. They don't want to say that, but they do want you to think that what the church has always understood Paul to mean was wrong. They will say, yes, Paul says that the husband is the head of the wife, but head doesn't mean authority. Or they'll say something like, sure, Paul says that a woman ought not to teach or exercise authority over a man. But what he really means is that they should teach and exercise authority over a man. That's what it really means. And so they adopt these incredible hermeneutical oddities to affirm what the Bible denies and to deny what the Bible affirms. They argue that the church has just gotten this wrong through the centuries, until us enlightened Westerners came along in the last 30 or 40 years and figured this out. And so they undermine the functional authority of scripture in this area of the church's life. I'm not saying these folks are insincere. I am saying that they are sincerely wrong. And you will be wrong and in error and will introduce unhealthy components into your life if you follow their teaching, because you will not be holding fast to the teaching as Paul originally taught it. Paul praises the Corinthians for holding fast to the teachings that he delivered to them. But the praise actually, in verse 2, it stops there, because the next verse, verse 3, implies that they're not totally on the same page with Paul in every respect they need to understand that they are falling short when it comes to this teaching about headship. So look at verse three, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Now this verse is the main thing that we have to get right about this passage. If we miss what this verse is teaching, then we miss the point of the passage because this verse sets forth the theological principle that is the foundation for everything else that Paul is going to say in this passage. Everything else that follows about head coverings and hair length that we'll look at next time, those are applications of this fundamental principle in verse 3. Obviously, what Paul's doing in verse 3 is he's unfolding a series of relationships all of which are defined by this notion of headship. Christ is the head of man, man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. But what Paul means by head is precisely what so many people are contesting today and are disputing about today. Evangelical feminists will argue that the word head does not mean authority as the majority of the church has taught for 2,000 years. On the contrary, they argue that this word head means source. And on that view, Paul is simply, mean, Paul is simply saying that Christ is the source of a man, in that he created man. Man is the source of woman, in that Eve was taken from the man's side. And that God is the source of Christ, in that God sent Christ, or perhaps eternal generation. In any case, headship signifies the source of something and there's no hierarchy or authority involved in a headship relationship. That's how the evangelical feminists will often put it. I think that that interpretation is mistaken for a number of reasons. First, it's not at all clear that the word head ever means source anywhere, not just in scripture, but anywhere in Greek literature. It's possible that perhaps in a handful of cases, it means that, but it's never clear. Second, it's very clear that head does mean authority in a number of biblical texts and especially in Paul's writings. And I want you to mark a couple of these. Ephesians chapter one in verse 22 says this, and he put all things in subjection under his feet. God puts all things in subjection under Jesus's feet. And gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church. Now, God puts all things in subjection under Jesus' feet and gives him his head. What do you think head means? It means Jesus, Jesus is the authority over everything. Because all things are in subjection to him. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And he is the head over all rule and authority what does that what does head mean he's the head over all rule and authority it means he's the authority over every other ruler in the cosmos that's what it means ephesians chapter 5 verses 23 and 24 for the husband is the head of the wife as christ also is the head of the church he himself being the savior of the body but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. He just told the wives to be subject to their husbands and called the husbands head of their wives. It's, it's clearly talking about an authority relationship. And it takes some really special pleading to get these uses of the word head to mean anything other than authority. And Paul certainly has that idea of authority in mind when he uses the term in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. So how does headship, if if it means authority, how does that cash out in these three relationships that he mentions in verse 3? Well, that first relationship is Christ's headship over man. Look at verse 3 again. Christ is the head of every man. Now, this clearly means that Christ is the authority over every man. Now, certainly we believe that Christ has authority over every man that's ever been created, right? We agree with that. But I think that Paul means to stress here, Christ's authority over the men in the congregation. Every one of them have a covenant obligation to submit to the authority or the headship of Christ. He's talking specifically about all these Christian men in the congregation. Now, there isn't as much debate over this particular line as there is over the next two lines. So we won't linger here too long because at least in principle, all sides agree that Christ is the authority over every man. But our problem, even with this, is not in understanding that principle of Christ's authority, but in realizing the practice of Christ's authority over us. Christ is the authority over every aspect of our lives. His word is literally our command. And to the degree that it isn't, we aren't being faithful to this headship. So the first thing that Paul expresses here is Christ's headship over man. But look next, secondly, at man's headship over woman. Look at verse three again. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman. Now, right here at the outset... I have to tell you, there's a bit of a question about who this man and this woman are. And some, many of you in the room are reading the ESV, and you will notice in the ESV that it says the husband is the head of the wife. Now, why is that translation so different from the one that I just read to you? Well, the word for man in Greek is the same as the word for husband, and the word for woman in Greek is the same as the word for wife. So when these words get used in the Bible, context always determines whether or not you're dealing with a man or a woman in general or with a husband or a wife in particular. In this case, I think the ESV has it right. I think Paul has in mind a husband and a wife in particular. Now, why why do we think that? Why do I think that? Well, for one thing, Paul, when Paul discusses man and woman like this together elsewhere, he's typically dealing with husbands and wives. I just read to you from Ephesians chapter five. It's a great example of that. This morning in, in uh, Sunday school, I just taught on Colossians chapter three. He deals with men and women again, but he's talking about husbands and wives. That's just the way Paul typically does this. When he talks about man and woman together, he's typically talking about husbands and wives. But also there's another clue here right in the text. Notice that it says, Christ is the head of every man, but it doesn't say that the man is the head of every woman. Now, why would he change that? Why would it be different from the first clause to the second? I think the reason for that is that Paul has in mind the particular obligation that, that a marriage covenant puts on a husband and a wife. A man is the head of his wife, not of every woman. And the Bible doesn't teach anywhere that a man is the head of someone else's wife. In other words, he's the head of his own wife. And so that is why I think that's what's in view here, husbands and wives. Headship is a particular covenant obligation. And he's thinking of the covenant of marriage, I believe. And that's really why a text like this is so toxic to feminists. This verse really does say that God has designed the marriage relationship as a headship relationship. The husband is supposed to lead and the wife is supposed to affirm and support that leadership. To miss this is to miss what God designed marriage to be. So husbands, God has called you to bless your wife and family by leading them. Your headship, does not exist so that you can serve yourself, but so that you can serve them. The pattern for your headship is Christ's headship, which means it's a leadership modeled on love and self-sacrifice. If it's not love and self-sacrifice, it is not biblical headship. It's something else. Ephesians 5 says it this way, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, that means that your headship in your home does not exist so that you can put your desires and your needs before everyone else's. Your headship exists so that you can give yourself up for your wife just like Christ gave himself up for you. That means that being the leader and the protector and the provider in your home is something that's sometimes gonna be hard. It's gonna cost you. There are going to be times when you have a conflict in your marriage with your wife, and there will be times when the conflict is her fault, and you are gonna feel like disengaging emotionally from your wife, but you don't get to do that. As the head of your home, you don't wait passive-aggressively until your wife swallows her pride and makes the first move to reconcile. You're the leader. That means that you are leading the charge for reconciliation when there's conflict in your home. You get to treat your wife just like Jesus treats you as a sinner. Jesus did not wait for you to become repentant and deserving before he drew near to you. Jesus led out in your reconciliation. You did not. Jesus did everything to win you, and you have to do the same for your wife. That's what it means to be the head of your home. You say, but I'm really mad at her. Well, you get unmad at her. (laughs) I'm not a good communicator. Well, you become a good communicator. And you be the head of your home. And you take the initiative and you model tenderness and mercy and love and forgiveness and everything else that she needs to make following your leadership a joy to her. You say, well, that's hard. Well, yeah, it's hard. But it's not any harder than anything Jesus did to love you. And he's your model. So you follow Jesus and you love your wife self-sacrificially. Wives... This headship relationship means that the onus is on you to affirm your husband's leadership and authority in the home. You are not to submit to every man, just to one man, your husband. That's your covenantal obligation. You should view affirming your husband's leadership as a part of your commitment to the Lord Jesus. So the narrow road that leads to life for you in your marriage is the path of affirming that leadership. Marriage is more than headship, but it is not less than headship. Biblical headship blesses, honors, and protects wives and children and does not require them to submit to sin or to abuse. Failure to realize that kind of biblical headship is one of the reasons why there's so much dysfunction in marriages today. And our culture is trying to run marriage in a way that's contrary to God's design. And it's like trying to run your car on a half-and-half mix of gasoline and moonshine. It might run for a little while, but it won't run well, and it'll likely sputter out and ruin the engine. And that's not what we want. We want to recognize marriage according to God's design, which means we recognize Christ's headship over man, but then we recognize man's headship over woman in the covenant of marriage. But then the last thing is this. God's headship over Christ. Everybody look at verse three again. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Now, when Paul wants to refer to God the Father in particular in his writings, he often just uses the word God, the word theos, which is what he does here. And so since Paul is referring specifically in this verse to God the Father, that means that this is a Trinitarian statement. Paul says that God the Father is the authority over Christ in some sense. Does that mean that Christ is somehow less than God because the Father is in authority over him? Well, it doesn't mean that, and here's why. Within the inner triune life of God, there is an absolute equality of deity between father and son. There's an eternal relation of origin that establishes both difference between father and son and that guarantees that they both, as God, equally share all the attributes of deity, including equal authority and power. But I don't think that Paul's words here in verse 3 are calling attention to the what we call the imminent trinity, those eternal relations, <clears throat> the eternal intra-Trinitarian relations. But it's calling attention to the economic trinity. How do we know that? Well, notice that Paul uses the word Christ to refer to Jesus here, which focuses, focuses us on the Son of God's unique role as mediator of the new covenant. And as mediator, Christ submits to the Father's authority. Uh, One theologian put it this way. He said, The obedience of the eternal Son in the economy of salvation is the proper mode whereby he enacts the undivided work of the Trinity. It is the economic extension of his eternal generation to a spirit-enabled creaturely life of obedience unto death or we could put it in biblical terms. Philippians chapter two, verse six. Although he, Jesus, existed in the form of God, which means Jesus, true deity, deity all the way through. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Who is Jesus obedient to, to the point of death? God. So in this sense, Christ submits to his Father, who is his head and authority. But this last phrase of verse 3, I think, raises another question. Why does Paul put the God-Christ relationship last in the series of relationships? If Paul were really trying to indicate some kind of a hierarchy of authority, it seems like he would have started with God and Christ at the very top and then worked his way down to man, to Christ and man and man and woman. So why does he put it at the end? I think he put it right after the man-wife relationship because he wanted to press the headship analogy to that relationship. He's saying that a man's headship over his wife is like God's headship over Christ. Even though Christ submits to God God the Father, that submission does not make him inferior to the Father in terms of his deity. Even though God is the head over Christ, he is not essentially greater than Christ. So too, even though women are under men's authority, they are not essentially inferior to men. Men and women are equally created in God's image and have equal value and dignity before God as persons. And that equality is not diminished at all by the fact that man is head over his wife. Difference does not mean inequality. Different roles for men and women within the covenant of marriage do not imply inequality between men and women as persons. Christ's deity is not diminished by his mediatorial submission to his father. Likewise, a wife's value and worth are not diminished by her submission to her husband." I think that's what he's trying to say there. You know, From time to time, I will hear people say that our views on gender should not be based at all on our view on the Trinity. And I I hear this from folks on both sides of the gender debate, and I think I understand the reasons why people are wary of, of doing that of theologizing about gender through comparisons to the Trinity. First of all, I think those comparisons can become speculative and totally disconnected from Scripture. Second, I think there's a danger of forcing the doctrine of the Trinity onto a Procustian bed of one's views about male and female relationships. I think in both cases, this central doctrine of the faith, the Trinity, becomes the handmaiden of a second-tier theological dispute, and I'm completely sympathetic to that concern. The gender debate is so pitched that the tail can get to wagging the dog really quickly. But having said that, I want to be careful here not to overcorrect. I saw one well-known theologian I think overcorrect in just this way one time. He said this. He said scripture itself does not explicitly link to uh, link gender to trinity or the masculine feminine dynamic to the father son dynamic. And when I read that, I thought have you read 1 Corinthians 11.3? I, mean, I understand that there can be speculative abuses here, but that should not diminish the fact that the analogy between male headship and marriage and God's headship over Christ derives not from speculation, but from the Bible, from this verse. It comes from the very verse that we're reading right here. Tom Schreiner said it this way in comments he made on this verse. He said, Paul wants his readers to see the relationship between men and women as analogous in some sense to God's relationship to Christ. The headship of the Father over the Son grounds the relationship between men and women. And so what what I think that means is that our task is neither to go beyond nor fall short of what is written in scripture on these things. And Paul says, I want you to understand That Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. That means that we need to understand these headship relationships, that they're like one another in at least one key respect. They designate relationships of authority and submission. God sent his son as the mediator who obeys to the point of death, and thereby he becomes highly exalted. Exalted. If that is true, then it is no dishonor or a slight for a wife to affirm the headship of her husband. And it is certainly no dishonor for a man to submit utterly to his head, Jesus Christ. Now, we've only gotten through two verses this morning. And there is so much more to say about this passage. And in fact, in in the midst of this last week as I was studying this um, and preparing for this sermon, this one sermon got turned into two. So week after next, we're going to take a look at how this principle of headship grounds Paul's specific instructions about men and women in public worship. This is a key point for us because what Paul believes about marriage actually has implications for the entire body of Christ and how we come together for worship. So we'll look at verses 4 through 16 next time. But it was worth the time for us to take a slow walk through these two verses. And I want to leave you with a few questions to think about and how you might apply this text to your life. Here's the first one. Are you holding fast to all of what Scripture teaches? Are you holding fast to all of what Scripture teaches and holding it in the sense that it was delivered when Paul and the other apostles and prophets first gave it? Or do you pick and choose and modify the parts that don't fit your conception of how things ought to be? You need to understand that your faithfulness is measured by what is revealed, not by what seems good to you at any given time. And what's revealed is what is written in Scripture. Are you holding fast to that? Second thing. Are addressed to husbands husbands are you okay with the fact that christ is the absolute authority over you christ is your head and you are the head of your family have you reckoned with the fact that your headship is supposed to look like jesus's headship if i were to ask your wife and your kids about your headship Would they be able to report to me a correspondence between the way you lead them and the way that Christ leads you? Third thing addressed to the wives. Wives, are you okay with the role that God has called you to in your marriage? I'm not denying that sometimes this can be hard and that sometimes husbands make it hard. But do you see God's design for marriage as a good for you? Or is it something that you're... Is godly headship something that you constantly chafe against? Fourth thing to all of us. Are we willing to accept the implications that this teaching about headship has for our entire congregation as we gather for worship? I want you to do something this week. I want you to read through this passage. And think about this because we're going to need to be praying about this as we prepare to study the rest of this text two weeks from now. Because there are some very specific implications for us as a body as we think about headship in the church. Let me say, if there's anybody here right now and you're listening to this message and you know that this doesn't make sense to you the gospel that I've kind of been referring to, you don't even understand what that is. I I just want to make clear to you what it is that we are fundamentally about here. We believe that we are all sinners. We are broken and we are crooked deep down. But we believe the Bible teaches that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that uh, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life, which means we are sinners and alienated from God. But the Bible teaches that God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for our sins, to take the punishment for our sins. And then after three days, he raised him up from the dead and offers us eternal life because of his resurrection. The Bible says if you believe in Jesus and trust in him, you will be saved. It's not because of anything that you can do for God, but because of what he has done for us through Jesus and that we receive by faith. If you haven't believed and trusted in Jesus to save you from your sins, you need to do that this morning. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you would use this text to make us humble, to make us acknowledge your headship, and to see how that headship is reflected in the relationships that you've given us. Father, help us to be humble and faithful to your word. Help us to receive this word. Help us not to chafe against this word or to try to change this word to mean something other than what it meant when Paul delivered it. Help us to receive the word implanted. And Lord, help it to give life to our souls. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.